0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that you are the God who loves us and cares for us. And we pray this morning as we turn our attention to your word that you might address us, that we might hear your voice and what rebuke we need to hear we might hear and heed, what correction we need we might receive, what teaching you have for us, might inform us and shape us, and that you might in every way prepare us to live as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, if you uh, ever needed evidence that our world is in turmoil, there has been plenty of it this week, hasn't there? Many of us, I know, are deeply worried about what's happening in Hong Kong. A number of us here at college have uh, family members who are in Hong Kong and so the terrifying things that are happening there are not just terrifying, uh, they're very, very personal because people we love are caught in the middle of it. It doesn't really matter which side you think is in the right and the other in the wrong, the violence, the disruption and the fear is real and it's terrifying. The ground seems to be shifting under our feet. To our friends uh, with family in Hong Kong, I want to assure you that many of us have been praying for the situation in Hong Kong this week and we will keep praying for you and for those you love in the days and weeks ahead. We know that it seems like you're a long way away from home and where things are happening, but we want you to know that you are not alone. But the turmoil is right here too, isn't it? A knife attack in, in the middle of Sydney on Tuesday, all too close, all too frightening. A man troubled and broken and disturbed, running amuck with a knife and as a result, one person lies dead and another seriously injured and buildings were locked down just in case. Or that horrendous decision in the New South Wales Parliament last week to decriminalise late-term abortion and the tragic celebrations of politicians and others afterwards, the most vulnerable in our society, those who are literally without a voice, made even more vulnerable as the sanctity of life received another blow. And people were cheering because somehow in 21st century Australia we have learned a way to rationalise the slaughter of the innocents we are embracing with blind, wild abandon what one leader once called a culture of death and it is terrifying. And in this way too, the ground seems to be shifting under our feet. And in the closer-knit world of Christian ministry in this city, I've heard just this week of two families torn apart by adultery, of grief and serious illness, of stress and burnout and collapse I know of congregations of God's people who are reeling from what's happened among them. You don't have to look very far to see disorder and turmoil in our circumstances, in this city, in this year, but in our homes and in our lives as well. And doesn't it make you want to ask, what can I hold on to in the middle of this storm? Who is strong enough to stand up against all this? Now I'm pretty sure you know the answer even before we turn once again to Matthew's Gospel this morning but don't rush to it too quickly, will you? Take the time to understand how desperately we need him and keep needing him and how quickly we forget he is our only hope, really our only hope, your only hope and my only hope. The storms keep raging outside of us but inside us too, and we need more than just a correct and abstract answer, don't we? The pain and confusion is too real, too concrete and too unsettling for just that. And if you don't feel the force of it just at the moment, you will sooner or later. In the midst of the regular pattern of life, the storm will strike, or fierce, overpowering opposition to Christ and those who follow him will stand in front of you and block the way forward. And the question will arise for you too. What can I hold on to in the middle of this storm? Who is strong enough to stand up against all of this? Well, in the big picture of Matthew's Gospel, we're in the middle of the second narrative block that stretches from the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 to the calling of the 12 apostles at the beginning of chapter 10. You might remember the reaction to the sermon at the end of chapter 7 and it happened that when Jesus finished these words the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was not just another highly qualified teacher. They'd seen them before. They're a dime a dozen, PhDs, d professorships, all the rest. But there was something different about him He had an authority which marked him out as different. And in the narrative block that follows that sermon, the authority of his words is amplified by his exercise of authority in the world, the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's boy, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. In the light of this authority, following Jesus is a serious business, It will not be comfortable and it will not be convenient. That's what we heard last week, isn't it? Don't think it will be easy. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And don't think you can put it off till you're ready. Let the dead bury their own dead. But following him is worth it because of who he is. In a sense, those lessons about discipleship are given physical, tangible expression in the two miracles that follow in Matthew chapter 8. So would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 8 and let's look at them one at a time. Firstly, the uncomfortable answer to the storm on the sea. Verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. See, it's still about following And a great earthquake happened in the sea, so that the boat was covered by the waves. But he was asleep. And they came and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, or cowardly, O people of little faith? Then rising, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were stunned, saying, What kind of man is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. The scale of the crisis on the Sea of Galilee that day is clear from the fact that at least four of those in the boat with Jesus were seasoned fishermen who were used to those waters and knew what to expect, but they were terrified, brought to breaking point by the events which engulfed them. I suspect this is the last thing that they thought would be happening when they got into the boat that day with Jesus. They'd heard his words, Uh, they'd seen the great miracles that he had done. Surely with him in the boat they'd be safe. It'd be an uneventful journey just to the other side of the sea. But it didn't feel safe that day. Following Jesus did not on that day and would not on any other day mean that they could live above the storms, avoid the terrifying moments, the challenges and the fears... The ground very literally seemed to be shifting under their feet. The earthquake deep below had thrown the sea into turmoil. It was not an ordinary storm. It must have seemed as if the gates of hell were opening up and they were going to be dragged in. It's it's a vivid picture of overwhelming power and human terror. They'd lost control of the boat. The waves were breaking over them. Soaked to the bone, it all looked hopeless. They were perishing. But just who was in that boat with them? And were they right to be afraid? Were they ever really going to be drowned in the sea while Jesus was in the boat with them? At least they knew enough to wake him. But ponder for a moment the stark contrast, the absurd contrast in the moment just before they did that. The storm, terrifying and threatening, the noise, the water, the screaming, the the terror and as Matthew puts it, immediately after saying the boat was being covered or swamped with waves, he was asleep. There's one person on that boat who is not terrified or threatened and it seemed, at least to them, that he was oblivious to what was going on. Notice that uh, when they wake him, screaming, Lord, save us, we're perishing, the first thing he does is not solve the problem. But rather he addresses their fear and their little faith in the middle of the problem. What was more urgent than the storm was their need to learn that he is the one to hold on to in the storm. You see, it wasn't that they didn't have enough faith. Rather, the faith they had was little faith. Even though they were screaming at him to save them, what did they actually think he was going to do? They did not have that full-blown trust in him to hold them and keep them and save them. Their reaction to what happens next makes that much clear. And then he does stand and rebukes the wind and the sea and here's the bit that's even more terrifying than the storm, there was a great calm It was not that things started gradually to die down as storms naturally come to an end. The wind stopped immediately. The waves stopped immediately. It suddenly and completely ceased. With one short rebuke, the other gospel accounts give us the actual words, silence, be still. And as I said, the sudden silence raised more questions than the storm. You only have to think about it for a moment to realise that that calm coming so quickly, so suddenly, so eerily was more frightening than the storm. What kind of man is this? Perhaps they thought they knew up to this point, but not anymore. His exercise of authority over the wind and the sea broke open whatever categories they might have used to understand him before this. Even the wind, even the sea, the most violent storm they'd ever seen. And it did his bidding What kind of man is this? Who is he? Some of you will have heard uh, the story of my visit to Smith's Lake up on the central coast uh, many years ago now. Uh, It's a lovely idyllic spot normally. Uh, I went there uh, for a, a Sunday afternoon drive with Catherine, her parents and our little daughter Elizabeth who was just two years old at the time. Uh, We went for a walk along the beach, but on that day the wind was howling and the waves were crashing against the beach and this tiny little thing turned around and looked at the lake and said, wind, be quiet. (laughs) And you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) And in the final analysis it wasn't really that big a wind. (laughs) Certainly not like the wind on the Sea of Galilee that day. The authority Jesus exercised that day with those two little words, give us a glimpse of who he is. The wind ceased and the waves stopped and there was a great calm because of who he is. And the wonderful background of the Old Testament opens up that window for us further. He commands the wind and the sea because he is the one who made them and he is the one for whom they were made. You might remember the words of David in Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Or in Psalm 107, the first of that last book of Psalms, after speaking of those who went down to the sea in ships and the storm the Lord raised up against them, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. It is the Lord God And only the Lord God who stills the storm and calms the sea in the Old Testament. And this one who has been asleep in the boat with them but now stood amid the sudden calm had stilled the storm and calmed the sea. You see, there is nothing. There are no circumstances. There is no combination of forces. There is no movement or even cosmic power that can withstand his voice. He is the one you can hold on to in the storm. He is the one, the only one, who will not be shaken no matter how violently the ground shifts under your feet. Such is the authority he bears. And discipleship in the midst of the storm takes on a different complexion when you remember just who it is you're following. As one man put it, Our fears as Christians about survival only subside when we grasp just who it is who is with us in the boat. The key to Christian discipleship is the one who walks through life with us. But it was not comfortable. Not in the middle of the storm, nor even when it was suddenly calmed at his word. There's an edge to their question, isn't there? What kind of man is this? If they could not control the storm, they certainly could not control him. To use C.S. Lewis's picture, he is not tame. He is the powerful Lord before whom the storm had no choice but to cease, before whom the dead would have no choice but to rise, and before whom even the demons have no choice but to leave and die. Which takes us to the second incident. The first, the uncomfortable answer to the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The second, the inconvenient answer to the storm in the two men by the tombs. Take a look at verse 28. When he had gone to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men from the tombs came out to meet him, so exceedingly fierce that no one was strong enough to pass by that way. They cried out, saying, "'What have you to do with us, son of God?' Have you come here before the time to torment us? And there was, some distance from them, a herd of swine feeding. And the demons urged them, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said, Go. They went out and entered the swine, and the entire herd of pigs rushed over the steep bank into the sea and died in the water. The herdsmen fled And when they came to the city, they announced all that had happened, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And the whole city came out to meet with Jesus and seeing him, they urged him to depart from their area. The storm on the lake had been external. The disciples had got into the boat and set out and it met them. It was ferocious and they were terrified. But here we come across two men in an isolated, unclean place, and the storm was actually inside them. They were menacing to others. They were so strong that no one was strong enough to even attempt passing by that way. But underneath and behind all that, they were being torn apart inside. If you want to know what the demons intended to do to those men, then just look at what they do when they leave them. Theirs was the dreadful storm within... And at one level, it must have been just as frightening to encounter them as it was to encounter the storm. Uncontrollable. Ferocious. The point is that these men opposed Jesus. Their attention was focused on him. In the parallel accounts, only one of them is mentioned. Perhaps he was the spokesman, the alpha male. But here we find there were actually two. Wandering around, more than half mad, and attacking anything, anyone that came close. Here on this Gentile side of the lake, among the tombs, not far from the pigs, at every point unclean. And as I say, they stand in the way of Jesus. I can only remember one or two occasions in my life when I have stood toe to toe with angry, aggressive opposition to Jesus. I remember talking to a man who was shouting and swearing and blaspheming at Jesus about a foot and a half away from my face. I kept stepping back. He kept stepping into my personal space. He was fuming that anyone should even try to talk to him about Jesus. How dare I mention Jesus to him? I thought he was going to take me out just to prove his point. I kept trying to do all I could to calm him down. But the ferocity of that man was nothing compared to these two among the tombs. And they had a different reason. These men were angry because they were threatened. They might have inspired fear in others but this time they were frightened. This time they were threatened. Listen again to their words. What have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here before the time to torment us? Son of God, they knew who he was. Well, why wouldn't they? After all, the devil knew. And they also knew that he had nothing in common with them. But more than that, they knew the day was coming when he would judge them. There will be a time, an appointed time, when they would have to face him. But they didn't think it was yet. They didn't want it to be yet. It's intriguing, isn't it, uh, that to this point Jesus has said nothing. He's just arrived and they came out of the tombs to meet him. He hasn't challenged them. He hasn't done anything. But they were terrified by his presence and rightly so. The townspeople and uh, anyone else who passed by that way were terrified of these men. They were terrifyingly powerful. But they knew the truth that there was no question at all who had the power in this encounter. So Jesus doesn't even have to speak before they're seeking a way to flee. They notice the pigs, it's a Gentile region after all, and they ask to be sent into them. It's grotesque and it is farcical. Those who had terrified so many people, so desperate now to find a way to escape, where do they find it? In a herd of pigs. there's something about pure evil that's always grotesque and even farcical. So they'll go into the pigs, they'll leave this man alone and they'll go into the pigs. Perhaps we're meant to see more than that. As one scholar puts it, evil, real evil cannot simply disappear. It has to be borne by another, transferred to another. And in this imperfect picture, We are being prepared for the great transfer not too long in the distance when all the evil that oppresses us, our own evil no less, will not just disappear but we will be born in full by another. Well, whether or not we ought to go that far, what we do see without a doubt is the wickedly perverse nature of these demons. I mentioned before that uh, they were destroying the men they had possessed. And you see their intent by what happens when they enter the pigs. The entire herd rushes off a cliff into the sea and is drowned in the water. They do to the pigs what they always intended to do to the men, to bring them down and destroy them. And Jesus had just said one word, just one, go. Go. There was no lightning, there was no thunder, there were no theatrics, just go. He was the one left standing on the path that day. The rage of those two men, or rather the demons who possessed those men, had been real and terrifying. This storm too was violent and a threatening one, but it had been thoroughly and entirely dealt with by one word, go. But the sting in the tail is actually what happened next. The herdsmen who looked after the pigs fled to the city, presumably Gadara, and they reported everything. They didn't just speak of the mad suicidal plunge of their pigs. They spoke about what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Men. The men they knew all about. The men who terrified them all. And the crowd came out and they confronted Jesus and they asked him to leave. What an extraordinary reaction. You might have expected jubilation. You might have expected celebration that the menace in the tombs was out of the way. The pathway could be reopened. They were safe again. But no, they ask him, they urge him to leave. It shows their priorities perhaps. The economic disaster of losing the herd of pigs trumped the rescue or and of the... Uh, The two men who had been terrifyingly oppressed for so long. But it also shows the opposition to Jesus. And that opposition to Jesus doesn't always have to be aggressive and violent and confrontational. Not everyone who hears of the mercy of Jesus will rejoice. He had been too powerful for the demons. With just one word, they left those men and died in the lake. He would be too powerful for them too and so in a strange way he was even more frightening than the storm. He would interrupt the steady pattern of their life without God and they were not prepared for that interruption. It was too risky to have Jesus around, too challenging, too inconvenient The authority recognised when Jesus delivered his sermon on the mountain was more extensive and more challenging than those who heard him there realised. Its reach goes beyond correcting the shallow hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees, beyond the healing of disease. He has authority over the created order itself and even the demons, no matter how many, no matter how strong, cannot stand against him. What kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What kind of man is this that the demons quake in fear before him? There are powerful lessons to learn here about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus in a world where the storms rage outside and inside, about the varieties of opposition to Jesus you're likely to encounter, raging anger, or self-centred disinterest. But the most important lessons are about the man who stood in the middle of those storms, the storm on the Sea of Galilee and the storm within the men of Gadara. He is the one who is Lord, God among us, doing what the Old Testament makes clear only God can do. Just a word, silence, be still, Go. And who he turns out to be is the most important lesson about discipleship. What matters most is the one you follow. The key to Christian discipleship is the living, sovereign presence of Jesus Christ. What can I hold on to in the middle of this storm? Who is strong enough to stand against all of this? It's him. It's only him. One last thing though, the citizens of Gadara came and urged him to turn and leave their region and that is what he did. At the beginning of Matthew 9, he got back into the boat, sailed back over the Sea of Galilee and came to his own city. There is no evidence that he ever returned to the region of the Gadarenes. Frighteningly, he allowed their rejection of him to stand. For you see, there is a moment of decision and it will not last forever. The disciples needed to learn that lesson too and so do we. Will you pray with me? I thought as we finish praying and I don't know whether this is going to be done later on but I'll do it anyway. We pray for the people in Hong Kong. Heavenly Father, as we look at our world and see the storms raging, the ground shifting under our feet, opposition to you of various kinds, and our own failure and weakness, we know that it is only Jesus who is our hope. This morning we bring before you the dreadful situation in Hong Kong, the fear and the violence, and we pray that you might protect those we know and love. We pray that you might enable those who belong to Jesus to testify in the midst of that storm to him who is their only hope. We pray you might bring an end to the violence, an end to the terror and the fear. And we pray for those amongst us who at some distance from these events feel them very deeply and personally because family members are there. And we ask you to be their comfort too. Heavenly Father, our hope is in Jesus whom you have given to us and it is in his name we pray. Amen.